Welcome everybody, this is the Social Business Hangout and this is episode 40 and, and it's a very special one because the geek in me is in the Personal Computer Museum, the only interactive PC museum in Canada right. and uh, we just actually got a, a wonderful tour of the place, we'll be putting that up uh, uh, as a video, but uh, please introduce yourself Sid. Uh, my name is Sid Bolton, I'm the founder and the curator here at the Personal Computer Museum. And you started this circa 05, 2005? Yeah, we opened up uh, September 2005, so we just celebrated our 7th anniversary. And uh, I've been wanting to do this, and I've been working on this project sort of on and off for about 25 years. But uh, for seven years it's been a reality, so you don't have to tell me, dreams can come true. I've been thinking about doing this for a long time, finally made it happen. And for those, for those of you that, that can't be here or don't have the ability to see what we just saw, it's awe-inspiring. Like for any person that is in, either in the IT field or has grown up in the 80s or had a computer at home, and now we're not talking consoles or whatnot, we're talking PCs. Mm -hmm. And when I say PCs, I'm obviously including Macs. PCs, variations yeah. that, that PC no longer... PC original representation would just meant personal computer. Yeah, meaning I don't have a mainframe in my backyard. Right. Because when you think about it, the, the museum, you would have had a, it would have housed a mainframe. Yeah, I mean, we call it the personal computer museum because we strictly... Uh, I mean, if you want to be official about it, uh, we only chronicle microcomputers is what they're called. Nobody calls them microcomputers today. Um, but the computers that we use are classed as micros. Um, of course, mainframes were uh, the machines that were around in the 40s and 50s and 60s and beyond. And to, and to this day. Um, and then the mini computers. Uh, now, I, I shouldn't say that we only have micros because we do have one mini computer. Uh, we have a PDP-11. And the PDP-11 was actually, uh, it recently, it's been sitting in Brantford for probably a good three or four years we've had it. And uh, it actually left Brantford. It, uh, it got on a truck and it went to Toronto and it was part of an upcoming film. So uh, it was actually a recreation of uh, a government office in 1976. So it was used in the film. Uh, the film is called uh, Public Sector. It's going to be a short film. Uh, stars Gil Bellows, who was in uh, Ally McBeal. Uh, I'm not sure what kind of distribution, if it's going to be on the, you know, the film festival circuit or where it's going to be. But uh, sometime in the future, if you come across this movie and you see this old computer, that's ours. And, and vice versa. There's, you know, we, the last computer we were looking at was you know, seen in the movie War Games as well. And that was a... That was a 1983 release from MGM. Uh, and that was an MSI 8080 computer. And uh, the MSI is... 1976 was when it came out. And it was one of the first personal computers ever made. And is that the oldest one that you have here? It's the oldest one that we have. It's sort of, uh, a lot of people ask us, you know, if we can have the computers chronologically. Uh, we don't. We don't really have the room to sort of, it'd be nice if we had them put that way. But in some ways, we have them grouped the way we have grouped for certain reasons. Uh, some of it's physical space. Some of it's, you know, we talked about some of it on the video tour, why the, why the atom is relegated to the corner. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, it'd be nice to have that sort of chronological display. Maybe when we get to our new home, whenever that is or wherever that is, uh, we're working on it, uh, then maybe we'll be able to do that kind of a display. So, so once again, you've alluded to it. You're, you know, for those of you that come in here and do come and visit, and, and it's pcmuseum.ca? PCMuseum.ca, yeah. Uh, so, so if you come here, you know, it, it's filled to the rafters. And we're actually upstairs right now, and I'm still surrounded by a whole bunch of PCs. 
if, if a little I, more breathing room up here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if if we were to just do a quick, you know, rundown, very quickly, uh, throw some names of, of some of the PCs that are here. Get you know a brief I- I- inventory of some things that might catch people's interest. Well, we have what were the most popular computers in the '80s. Uh, certainly, we have the early Apple computers, both uh, the 8-bit line and the 16-bit line, which would be the original Macintosh series. Um, we have a whole bunch of Commodore computers. A lot of our volunteers, myself included, uh, really love Commodore machines. So we have, I still own mine, and it's a beautiful computer. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we have everything from the VIC-20 to the Commodore 64 to you know, a more obscure Commodore like the, the B128. Um, we also have the PETs. Uh, and, of course, we have the Commodore Amigas, which uh, are you know, sort of the machines that I made my living off of for many years and uh, have a great affection for. Of course, Atari was, uh, wasn't exactly a big, huge computer company. They were more into the video games, but they did have a computer division, and they produced uh, both 8-bit and 16-bit computers. So the Atari 8-bit line, there were several models. And uh, the Atari 16-bit series was known as the Atari ST, and it was a serious competitor to the early Macintosh and, of course, to the Amiga. Um, so we've got those machines. We also have Radio Shack machines. We have everything from you know, the original TRS-80s or Trash-80s, as mm-hmm. they're uh, sort of affectionately referred to as. And, of course, the Color Computer Series, which I know you had, yep. uh, uh, also known as the Coco. So we have the Coco 1, 2, and 3. Um, and then we have some of the more, uh, those are sort of the bigger brands. And then we have some of the smaller brands, maybe only have one or two computers, like uh, Texas Instruments, for example. We have... Uh, Hyperion. We have an early compact uh, portable computer. Of course, we have IBM computers here. We have uh, one for kids that kids love, the Hot Wheels computer we have. That's very popular. Another one that we have that a lot of people in Ontario will remember because it was an Ontario school initiative is something called the Icon. And the Icon computer was only used in the education system. So you couldn't go and buy one for your home. Uh, and it was a computer that was initially designed and meant to keep costs down in the uh, school system, and it turned out to do exactly the opposite. You know, as uh, PCs came down in price as they became popular in homes, uh, the price of the icons were still up much higher, and so it was a big failure. And uh, the Ontario government has gotten rid of all the the archival information, so we're one of the only places around that actually has any information on the icon at all. Uh, in fact, we've been contacted, you know, people doing Wikipedia articles to use some of our materials and so on. Um, we've also got, uh, you know, I'm trying to think what other machines we have. But there's just so many. Um, I mean, we've got the uh, Atari machines I mentioned, but we've also got some stranger Ataris. Like we have the, the really uh, small Atari portfolio, which was kind of cool. Everything's got a story behind it. You know, we could talk about how the portfolio was used in the movie Terminator. Uh, John Connor used it to break into the ATM and all that kind of stuff. So there's things like that. you got to come and see the machines. There's just so many of them. They each have a story. And I think that's fundamentally the point is we can talk about these things and we will be talking about uh, you know, the, the value and the importance of the, the heritage that is the personal computer. Uh, but really, at the end of the day, if you're in the area, do come by uh, to the PC Museum. Now, one of the things that is in this room... Uh, is a VIC-20. And the VIC-20, I know a lot of us, you know, uh, we talk a lot about social media. No one would associate social media with a VIC-20. No. But we, we But we can. Yeah. So let's t- t- tell the audience what you were able to do with a VIC-20. So I had this idea back in 2009 of 
taking some vintage computer and connecting it to social media. Not sure where I came up with the idea from, but it was just it was. It had to be done. It had to be done. It was floating around in my mind. I picked a computer which I thought was probably the least likely candidate, and the VIC twenty came to mind. Uh, partly because I I had one. Um, I saved up. A, I had an expositor paper route when I was a kid, and I saved up my money. And I remember buying it at Canadian Tire, your computer headquarters. <laughs> We're sitting right by an ad that says that. And um, I paid $321. It was $300 plus, uh, it was 7% PST back then. There was no HST or GST or any of that. It was just 7% provincial sales tax. So $321. I got my VIC-20. I loved it. You know, eventually I moved on to the 64 and so on. So it was a no-brainer for me to choose the VIC-20 to put on Twitter. So after um, a little bit of farting around and, and so on, I had to contact Twitter and get some changes, a special sort of API key to use to actually do what I needed to do. Uh, in February 2010, we were able to take the VIC-20 and actually put it on Twitter. So we had an event that uh, happened here. We had uh, all kinds of people that were here live and watched uh, Richard Beals, who is the city editor at the Expositor, uh, send out the first official tweet from the VIC-20. Um, the nice thing is, is that we also had people watching through our Twitter account all over the world to watch this tweet occur. And what really shocked me was how many different places picked up the story. So as the story went out, uh, we got media coverage from everywhere from you know the U.S. to Japan to everywhere in between. So that was really nice. Uh, a lot of people thought we were crazy for doing it, but also thought at the same time that it was pretty cool. And for a lot of people, it brought back a lot of good memories of the VIC-20. And of course, we had to bring up the, you know, the William Shatner ads. Uh, mm-hmm. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just... Google on YouTube or search on YouTube for William Shatner, Vic 20, and you'll see exactly what I mean. Yeah, and as you say, from a bit of inbound marketing as well, that's something that people will always look at as saying, even the old technology has its place. So let's kind of use that as a leaping, because we quite often on the Social Business Hangout talk about post-2009, you know, that the when social media and social business really started uh, coming to terms uh, Let's go all the way back, you know, in the days when most businesses would be farming out their their computing power to the mainframes of the world. And I'm an ex-EDSer, and, you know, we had our mainframe farms, and I've done my JCL and all that type of stuff, and I've been up at 3 o'clock in the mornings restarting jobs that have bended and all that. The (laughs) advent of personal computers had really two impacts. It changed the way we did business. And it also changed what we were able to do from home. So I kind of look at it from those two tracks, if you will. So let's start maybe on the business track. Walk me through, if you will, what importance, and really when most people think about that, they think quite often about the, the IBM 5150, would be when, when really businesses started becoming more mainstream. Mm-hmm. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, I mean, the computers that came out before the IBM, although they could do business functions, they weren't typically used in that fashion. So mostly what, scientific initially? Um, Well, honestly, a lot of times these were home enthusiasts using these computers and they were playing games on them and, and, you know, doing some, you know, rudimentary calculations. And of course, you know, when VisiCalc came out on the Apple uh, and later on the Atari and, uh, of course, later on the PC, um, it really changed things in terms of business. It suddenly gave 
the notion that, wow, you know, we can actually, and, and for those that don't know, VisiCalc is the first spreadsheet. Yeah, precursor and to Lotus 1, 2, 3. Exactly. It was earlier than Lotus 1, 2, 3, uh, which, you know, became a, a big hit, of course. And then the, after that came Excel, which is, you know, what everyone pretty much uses today, unless they're using something like OpenOffice. And, um, you know, really, before that time, people were just sort of messing around with computers. They weren't really considered necessarily... Uh, a real tool that people wanted to use in business. There was no ROI. No, there wasn't because, I mean, the thing was, though, like I remember my neighbor was an accountant and he actually ordered one of the first IBMs in Canada. Uh, and in fact, there was a, such a shortage of these machines initially that the computer store gave him an Apple II for the first month while he was waiting for his machine to be built and delivered. Um, and that's actually the first computer I ever touched uh, because... I used to go mess around with their typewriter all the time when I was a kid. And they had an electric typewriter and mm. I had a manual typewriter. So I used to like write all my stories and stuff like that on this manual typewriter. And then I'd sneak over to their house for tea. I was eight. Um, I had tea and, and typewriter time. That was what I did over at their house. And, of course, I'd visit too. But uh, And then one day they said, hey, we've, we've uh, got this cool new typewriter. And it turned out to be an Apple II. And then not long after that, they got an IBM PC. They had uh, Adventure on there, which uh, we actually have set up in the museum right now. And I just remember just being amazed by it. But they were using it primarily as a business tool uh, for this accounting firm. And I remember um, the uh, the owner telling me that he spent $17,000 in 1981 for a black and white computer with a wide carriage, because he had to do the ledgers and stuff like that in, in wide paper, um, the software and everything it was seventeen grand, and I mean that was you know what thirty years ago. Mm -hmm. So imagine how much that would be today. With, yeah, you're, and you're that's for sixty one, grand in, in current time. Yeah, that's take. like one computer. Yeah. <laughs> but um, that's but, really and that was still considered cheap compared to what computers were in that. Like if you compare right. that to a mini computer, or, sure, or a yeah, mini computer wouldn't even be accessible. And he actually ran this business out of his house. So this worked out well for him. You know, his kids played on it in the evening when he wasn't doing business. That's also when I got in. <laughs> and um, during the day, he used it as a business tool. And, you know, he would have made his money back, I imagine, fairly quickly because, of course, you know, it did a lot of things for him with spreadsheets and stuff that he would have been doing manually. And it would have allowed him to be have a competitive edge over people just because he, he had computerized mm -hmm. very early on. The automation, about, uh, automation of repetitive tasks right. was very much uh, something that most businesses didn't have. And he could provide a nice, beautiful printout you know, with a printer, and it would just look more professional. So um, business really started to change at that time, and I think a lot of it has to do just strictly really with the spreadsheet. I mean, it made that big difference. And, of course, then people would make custom programs to do things. That was the other thing that happened a lot back then was that there was just a, a slew of custom programs because you had basically, you know, you had the two camps, right? And you kind of have that today a little bit, but it gets a little muddied now. You had, you know, the strictly the users that just wanted to use it as a tool, did not understand what the heck was going on. And then you had the super geeks like myself who wanted to dive in under the hood and find out what was going on and found a certain power in being able to control a computer. That's really what attracted me, was mm -hmm. that I could make this machine do anything that I wanted. And at the same time, everyone else was going, wow, like this is amazing what you can make these machines do. And I think that's where a lot of early programmers got maybe their egos from, but also, um, you know, 
I wasn't always the best at things like sports and everything else, right? So here I had this, something that I was really good at, and I could handle it. And, of course, you know, at the same time, video games helped my hand-eye coordination, and now I can hit yeah. baseball, no problem. Uh, the old adage, the, the geeks will inherit the earth, uh, really stemmed from that. Yeah, era. and I mean, at the time, I'll tell you, it was a different life, though. It was like people looking at me, like, I had people looking at me that were stunned that I, you know, knew how to use the computer so well, but then there was other people, like, saying... This is really strange what you're doing. <laughs> you know, and it's funny, and, and just to leap forward very briefly, we're seeing a lot of that nowadays when we think about social media and, and social business and all these things is, you know, people are asking the ROI question. People that, that, that see it as being elements as opposed to a platform, you know, are able to see underneath the casing and see that it's capable of doing far more. That's where the real innovation comes in, and I think when you said it best, we now are in an era where everybody's got Office, let's say. You know, yeah. it, it, we, everybody's got the base software. But there was, as you say, a time where the hacker society, whether or not that was on the hardware or on the software, changed a lot of companies, both at home and, and at the office. And, you know, we, you have one example downstairs, the H&R Block's taxation system. Yeah. was a purpose-built piece of software that they had to go out and buy you know, a whole bunch of uh, refurbished, if you will, units because their entire business model was based on that. And it's interesting, too, that although back in the day when, you know, just using the computer and being able to write a custom program was something that, uh, you know, people were like, as I said, there was this camp of people and then there was there were the hackers. That kind of, uh, you know, situation still exists today with, with social media. It's a perfect thing that happens is you've got... The users over here that understand what it is, they, they have a concept of how it works, they see Facebook, they see Twitter, they see YouTube, but they don't really know how to make it necessarily work effectively. Mm -hmm. And so that's why they turn to people like yourself because they, they still, there's, there's this separate camp of people that kind of have a better understanding of it from an underlying perspective or who have learned ways to make it work well for a given situation. And uh, it's kind of interesting how the dynamics of that have changed, but in a lot of ways, it's really still the same thing. You know? And we had still the same two thing. camps. Yeah. You know? And we had that during the, the web era as well. Yeah, you know, so if you think about it as, as the, uh, the the early advent uh, of software at home and uh, and at the office when web came around, the same question seems to always come up: Why should I have a website? Why should I have a PC? Why should I have social media? Every 10 years, mm -hmm. you know, that same camp resurfaces and it's just rebranded. But at the same time, it's those that see it as an entity and those that see it as an entity that they can take apart and rebuild for whatever they need to be. And more importantly, integrated across the park. I'm thankful I don't get the question anymore, why do I need a computer? I don't really get that one anymore. Yeah. So, but yeah, finally, uh, but again, I remember. It's taken 30 years. Well, yeah, <laughs> like 30 years ago when this guy had this IBM PC... Um, he would have been, you know, other than, well, at that, that very first time, 1981, he would have been the only person on our street, certainly, and probably our entire neighborhood, that even had a computer. Um, you know, and, and eventually, you know, I, a couple of years later, I had my own, but in between I had to use the one at school. And I always tell this to kids, I say, you know, when I started with computers in my public school, we had one for the entire school. Mm-hmm. You know, think about how different that is today. And, and every one of us that's doing things with our smartphones is walking around with a computer in their pockets that is more powerful than all of the computers we have on display here. Yeah. Put together. 
Well, you have uh, right in front of us that there's a container there with a thousand, uh, three and a half floppies that equates to a one gig device. And this yeah. thing, like, just imagine a thousand floppies, or don't imagine it come to the PC Museum. Yeah. You know, it, a lot of people take for granted the evolution that we had to get through to get to what we have now. And when people walk in here, even looking at some of the stuff, like if you look at a Commodore 64, it's still got, you know, a keyboard, which is a certain size and width, of course, because of our hands, and a screen that is a certain size and because of our eyes. And so if you look at it from that perspective, it doesn't really seem like computers have changed that much. That You look at it, it's like, okay, here's a box, uh, you know, and maybe some of these old computers actually have mice hooked up to them as well. Here's a box, here's a screen, you know, yeah, it's better, obviously, it has better graphics, it has better sound, it has better X, but nobody really gets that understanding of really how far it's come because it doesn't look all that different, right? Keyboards haven't changed much over the years. Mice, yes, they've gotten better, but they're still, you know, the ones from 1984. If you can use a mouse today, you can use a mouse from 1984. It's really no different, um, other than maybe it feels a little less smooth, um, and it certainly wasn't wireless. Other than that, there's really no difference. So to try to wrap your head around what's different on the inside, that's a tough challenge. And that's something that I look forward to tackling when we get into a bigger space. I'm going to show people the physical difference between what they look at you know, today, every day when they use a computer, and what we had 30 years ago. Now, is there something else to be said about, you know, we, we, we hinted at it earlier about the hacking culture, and a lot of people... You know, ha hackers have that negative aspect, but hacking really is just making something work out of whatever you have available to you. When you look at, you know, let's use automobiles as an example here. Most cars nowadays, you can't get into the engine bay. You can't do stuff. In, in the good old days, you know, I, I'm dating ourselves when I say that, you could literally crack open a casing and play and try different things. Is there something to be said about that early ability that, that you don't necessarily have that same dynamic? Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things we've talked about doing here is having, you know, uh, a summer camp for kids where they learn completely on retro computers rather than uh, messing around with modern stuff. Because with the retro computers and, you know, the core of the computer, like the CPU, the RAM, everything else, it's still the same. It might be faster and better, of course, and newer computers, but the concepts behind them are still valid. Uh, the way mass storage works and how it's transferred from that mass storage into the CPU, all that stuff, it's exactly the same. And being able to get under the hood and actually do something, and this is sort of what I often will say when I'm describing why when people come here they feel nostalgic and why they feel... Uh, emotional because that's a real really strange thing in a way but it's the thing that excites me the most is when somebody walks in here and has a, an emotional reaction to a machine and you think to yourself why would you do that why would you have an emotional reaction to something that's just you know a piece of plastic or whatever but the reason is is because when people use those machines they actually felt a sense of accomplishment when they did something getting a program to load writing mm -hmm. a custom program tinkering around gave you that sense of accomplishment and made you feel good about yourself and that you were doing something really positive. Today, to use a computer, you don't need to know a lot. If you can click, you can run a, you know, run a mm -hmm. program or whatever. They've become so simple that that They've sense of... Appliances. Yeah, exactly. And the sense of accomplishment, discovery, and wonder is gone. Yeah, like I remember, uh, 
you know, and uh, once again, I still have my Commodore 64 and I actually still have uh, uh, the software that I wrote. One of the most elaborate programs, uh, first, first elaborate programs I wrote was on the Commodore 64 and I was looking at a Rubik's Cube and I said, I want to look at the motion of the Rubik's Cube and I created a two-dimensional representation of the Rubik's Cube and it's a crap load of go-to statements. Okay, yeah. just a crap load of go-to statements. But I literally reproduced the entire concept of the Rubik's Cube on a Commodore 64 with the colors and whatnot and had the keyboards laid out so that you move the whatever. But then I turned around and said, wouldn't it be great for me to be able to remember all the movements and then just reverse it and now you had the ability to, to, to solve the puzzle, right? Right. We're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines of go-tos and debugging it because all of a sudden you'd click something and the wrong thing would happen because you got the go-to wrong. And this was not an efficient piece of code. But when I finally got it, as you said, that sense of accomplishment from nothing to something. And now I think what we see is that something's there. Yeah. And a lot of the stuff, it's just, it's so easy to do anything today that it's, I don't know, it's, it's good and it, it's brought computers to the masses. It's demystified the machine uh, and made it, like you said, an appliance or a tool. And that's done a lot of great in the world, but it's also taken away something for some people now you can still find it if you if you look hard enough you know you can you can still find programming languages you can go find basic and do basic programming on your modern pc if you look it's there but you have to know to look for it and um, i also think one great thing with hardware is like things like arduino controllers where you can actually go in and and program hardware stuff those are great types of things to bring back that uh, sense of accomplishment. So I think that's good. And, you know, we could actually write a little program here uh, if, and do use a go-to statement. We could say 10, print, you have been listening to the social business hour. 20, go to 10. Exactly. So when you think about that, and that would just be, for those of you that don't know the basic, it would just go on <laughs> and on and on until you would go, go control break. Uh <laughs> Oh no no! The, you know, in the old days, you'd, have, you'd throw in the input statement in there. It's like <laughs> yeah. you know, what input you like what you wanted to print, yeah. right? Now you're being fancy. Oh, well, you know, three lines of code now. <laughs> uh, but you know, fundamentally, that's really what people don't think like that. And I'm not trying to be nostalgic or or, or, or change the viewpoint. But when you now are, and we call what we're in right now, either the social era, the age of the platform, and even PCs, you know, we refer to them as appliances. Like, my MacBook Pro literally has been on for, for, for three years, you know, and I, I know very little about it, you know, but my previous computers, I would have had the thing apart. My Xbox 360 just failed on me, and uh, to crack that thing open took an hour just to get through, you know, all of the, the, the devices, because they don't want people to go in there. No. And no. you miss it, but when I got opened up, I was like... There's a central processor. There's a graphics processor. Okay, I understand how this thing works. It never really changed. Yeah, that's right. And um, you're right. I mean, they don't need you or want you to. I mean, look at how Apple does its products. You can't even replace batteries on things that are you know they're going to fail at mm -hmm. some point. It's just inevitable that they will. Uh, but, of course, you know, there's two things that have changed that. Uh, design aesthetics, you know, Jobs didn't want the extra bulk of putting in something that's removable. And uh, also planned obsolescence. You know, mm -hmm. they want you to buy the next model. They don't want you to fix the old one. They want you to buy the new one. 
And um, well, the iPhone five just recently just been released, yeah. and how many people really needed an iPhone five? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not. I've got a four S, so I'm not making the jump to the yeah. five. I don't need to. You know, it, it just it doesn't entice me that much. But some people it will. You know. And uh, but if you think back to the way computers were before, you know, like if you had spent as much money as you would have to get those machines and something went wrong, you heck yeah, it. you were going to fix it. You were going to open up and get in there. And if you didn't know how, you were going to, you know, send it out for repair and, and get it fixed because it was, it was far cheaper to get it repaired than it was to uh, buy a whole new one. So uh, things are just not like that anymore. I mean, I'm, we find that people donate you know, computers to us that are perfectly working fine, that are actually not that old because, you know, the machine has been riddled with spyware, malware, whatever, and they don't want to pay the 100 to 150 to get it fixed at a service shop when because when, what they're going to get back is the computer that they bought three years ago, essentially, or two years ago, whatever it was, when for $300 they can go out and buy a whole new computer. I mean, computers have gotten so cheap mm-hmm. um, that they can just buy a whole new one, and, you know, now they've got a fancy, fast machine for not much more than they were going to spend to get the other one fixed, and then they give it to us, and we repurpose it and put it back out to a family that can't afford it. So it's great in one sense, but on the other hand, it's like, I cannot believe how quickly we're ditching technology. That's why I started this place, because it just, it's all happening too fast. I want it to slow down. Well, and you kind of brought up a very, very interesting point, and we'll kind of end on this. The entire recycling aspect, you know, um, these things, as you say, mo- most, most computers, when, when people say it's slow, it's probably because of all the stuff you loaded on over time. And if you mm-hmm. do a b- base reboot or reinstall, you know, you're back to something that was as fast as it was before, yeah. the bloatware and all that. But... The amount of hardware, the amount of electronic recycling and all that that we see right now is because we've changed to a world where, as you said, we don't fix things anymore. No. Everything's disposable. And if you really are looking for a place to dispose of your uh, old computers <laughs> and you're in the Bradford area... Bring it to us, because, I mean, software, books, all the stuff that goes with it, everything, we take it... And the thing is, I mean, you know, we do recycle stuff, of course, um, but at least if you bring it to us rather than, say, taking it to your municipality to get rid of it, when you take it there, they just get rid of it. It's gone. There's no chance of it being reused or reused or repurposed. At least with us, uh, one of three things happens. Either you, we get the machine and we um, fix it up and give it out to a family. Secondly, maybe it's historically significant. We keep it here. And then lastly, uh, recycling is, is the last choice. So, I mean, at least with us, you get a chance that it might be used somewhere else. So, one final note. When you think about your museum, why would someone want to come to the PC Museum? And why is it re- relevant to them? I know we touched bits on it, but if we were to re- re-sum that up. Well, I mean, it depends on sort of your, your background. But if, you're, if you've used these computers in the past, here's a chance to relive your own personal history. We're different than most museums in that... The stuff that we have has existed in a lot of people's lifetimes, so they can come and step back into a time period that's maybe positive for them, where they can try out what they used to try and have a lot of fun doing it. If you're younger, here's a chance to get educated on what you've missed. You know, all the cool stuff that's happened in the last 30, 40 years, and how we got to where we are today with our smartphones and our computers, because there's a rich history in how we got here. And a lot of times, you know, your favorite game designer or your favorite, you know, program there's probably some version of it or something that happened in the past that's going to bring you a little bit closer to that particular thing. You know, if you 
for example, if you like The Sims games, you know, come and visit Will Wright's first game. It was a simulator in a way, but it wasn't The Sims. Uh, if you want to find out that, then come and visit us and talk to us about it. So uh, part of it's education, part of it's taking a step back in time. Either way, it's a lot of fun. And best way to find it is PCMuseum.ca. PCMuseum.ca. We're located at 13 Alma in Brantford. Um, just go to PCMuseum.ca to find out our hours. And if you've got an iOS device, you can also download our app. It's free, and you can check out lots of stuff on that. Sid, it's been a, a fabulous conversation with you. And, and more importantly, you. we're actually going to be doing a couple of more of these. The next one is going to be about the history of gaming because your collection of games... Second to none. <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you, Sid. Reintroduce yourself. Uh, Sid Bolton, Personal Computer Museum. Thanks for listening. And I'm Robert Levine, your social business mentor. Thank you so much.